Hi, it's Vincent here. Join me in person when This Climate Business goes live during the Auckland Climate Festival. I will be hosting a panel on September 29 and you're invited to be part of the show. Special guests include James Shaw, the Climate Change Minister, Sophie Hanford, the founder of School Strike for Climate, and you. We'll be taking questions from the floor, and there might even be some food and drink. So that's September 29 at KPMG in the Viaduct in Auckland. Visit thisclimatebusiness.com to register, but do it now because, let's face it, tickets are limited. And now, on with the show. Andrew Kaisley is the outgoing CEO of ECA, the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Authority. He arrived in 2017 to launch a refreshed strategy, and he resigns as that piece of work more or less concludes. Well, back then, Judith Collins was the Minister of Energy. There were 6,000 EVs on the road, and Bruno Mars was top of the pops. So what has changed since then? How is New Zealand progressing towards a renewable energy system? And how many points out of 10 does Andrew give himself for his time as CEO? Well, he's in the hot seat now. Thanks, Andrew, for joining us on this climate business. Pleasure, Vincent. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm going to ask you that uh, out of 10 question in a minute, but just cast your mind back to 2017. You announced a strategy, a new strategy for the organisation. What were the challenges that you laid down for the organisation and for New Zealand? Look, uh, back then we actually had what was called a performance improvement framework review, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it was a, an initiative of then, then government about just asking various parts of government about whether they were, were ready and fit for purpose for what the government of the day was seeking to achieve. And that was an in, invaluable exercise for us. And our strategy was one thing that was identified that we needed to improve on. So we set to it clarifying just what our strategy was as an organisation. Um, my major contribution to that was to say it has to fit on one page. Uh, I've seen over the, my career strategies that have been extensive documents that consequently never get read, never get referred to, let alone get implemented. And that's been an invaluable guiding um, statement of what we're about and where we're headed. And one of the key things was establishing our purpose as an organisation, which is to mobilise New Zealanders to be um, world leaders in clean and clever energy use. And that has been invaluable over the last six years or so in guiding us as an organisation. Well, what were the things that you set out to achieve in that document? What were the challenges? Uh, look, the, the key things were to be very clear within the statutory mandate that we operate, because, of course, speaker is a, a creature of statute. It exists for no other reason that the parliament has chosen to establish us with a, with a mandate, which is focused on promoting uh, energy efficiency, energy conservation, and the use of renewable sources of energy. So that's basically the platform on which all of our activities are based. And so... Off the back of that, it was important for us to be clear about the areas that we were principally focused on around what that mandate defined, and then having some strategic principles that we, when we were contemplating on behalf of government um, intervening in the market in an appropriate way for the right reasons, that we were clear about what the problem was, who our customers were that we were focused on, what the impact was that we were seeking to achieve, 
and, and making sure that we weren't replicating and duplicating the effort of others. So that, that's been a key consideration for us throughout the period that we've been implementing the strategy. Uh-huh. Well, let's focus on two of those areas. Vehicles was one that you identified as a strategic pillar and um, electrifying the fleet seems to me from what I could read, one of your big ambitions. Has that happened? I mean, let's just look at some numbers. And we're quite staggering numbers, actually. 2013, there were, according to um, Ministry of Business and Innovation, 165 EVs on the road. Now there's nearly 84,000. So it's quite a big increase. But it still only represents a fraction of the fleet, right? It's still only 1.7 or 1.8 of the entire fleet. How would you rate the uptake of EVs? Look, more recently, I think we've done really well. Um, I won't pretend that it was hard work early on, and and that was for a variety of reasons. It it was by virtue of the fact that there was not a great deal of choice in those early times in in the period that I've been with ECA around EV models, and also, you know, the capital cost of new vehicles has been a real impediment for many people as well. And, and, you know, back five years ago, it was all about secondhandness and Leafs coming out of Japan, and and they fulfilled a, a, a great role at people becoming familiar with EV technology Mm. and the advantages of it. Uh, In the last couple of years, and particularly um, with the incentive that the clean car discount has provided, it's really got people focused on what EVs can do for them. And also there has followed very rapidly significant choice by the OEM manufacturers who have imported product into the market. And we Mm. see monthly now increases in the range and 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 more and more attractive pricing irrespective of the discount um, for vehicles that people consider purchasing and one of the big things we've tried to encourage throughout is get people to focus not just on the upfront capital cost and i know that's always a burden and and barrier for people but to think about the total cost of ownership when you buy an ev and that's really factoring in the significant operational cost benefits of an EV Mm. by virtue of the fact you don't have to fill up with diesel or petrol, um, but electricity with an incredibly efficient motor that takes very little maintenance and all of the advantages that's going to provide over the life of the vehicle. Andrew, the challenge in Auckland is that um, transport is our, uh, speaking as an Aucklander, it's our biggest uh, source of greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, the challenge is not so much replacing the fleet with EVs, it's getting people out of cars. Do you have a role in that? And if so, what have you done? Look, we we have identified that as a critical um, necessity and need. And, And, of course, there are multiple benefits if we can achieve that. I mean, everybody is familiar with congestion issues in Auckland, but it's not unique to Auckland. In fact, I think Tauron is now identified as yeah. the metropolitan area that's got the worst congestion. Uh, and, and, you know, many other parts of the country have their periods of congestion issues as well. So we that's been an objective of the government, and, and we've seen a role for ourselves around the emission benefits that can uh, occur if we can persuade people to have, adopt different modes of transport, whether that's using um, a sort of zero emission technologies like electric vehicles or scooters or electric bikes and the like, but you know, even getting out and walking when you can. You know, if you can eliminate one of your commutes per day in your own private vehicle, 
that is going to have a substantial cumulative benefit if we can get a lot of people to do that. Obviously, public transport has found it difficult in the last few years with the COVID issues that have arisen there, the mm. availability of drivers, etc. But um, certainly that has been a, a consideration and focus for us. And we've tried to message that through initiatives such as supporting World Car Free Day last year and other um, encouragements to people to try a different form and mode of transport if it suits them. And we know it doesn't suit everybody. That's a given. But for many people, if they can adopt that one day per week when they've got a different way of commuting or going about their daily activities, uh, there can be big pluses. Mm. Processed heat is uh, a major source of greenhouse gas emissions as well for New Zealand. Um, I, I can't remember the statistic, but is it about 30% of uh, national GHGs? Uh, energy overall is 40%. Half of that are our transport emissions. And process heat comes in at uh, 40% of our energy emissions. So they're about 16%. So they're still a big number. So mm. very relevant and, and very important that we do what we can there. Um, 60% of that, uh, according to your website, still remains from non-renewable sources, coal and gas, which ever, this is looking at the the way coal and gas works, um, quite staggering numbers with coal and gas, you know, 38% of processed heat comes from gas, but it's responsible for 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions and coal's much worse, actually, 11% comes from the processed heat comes from coal, but it's 26. So it's more than double the amount of effect you get from greenhouse gas emissions. What have you been doing to incentivize, cajole, command? Can you command? <laughs> what have you been doing with, with the processed heat sector? So we're talking about manufacturers, aren't we? We are. We are. And also, you know, particularly in the in the primary sector processing part of the equation, you know, where you go into the dairy sector, you go into the meat processing sector, you go into vegetable processing. All of them have traditionally used fossil fuels of one sort or another, coal, mm. gas predominantly, to process product. And so they have been a, a primary um, partnership that we have targeted to do what we can initially to encourage them to um, embark on their decarbonisation journey and to go faster where they can. And one of the products that we bought to market four or five years ago now was a, was a product called an emission um, energy transition accelerator. And it was basically identifying the opportunity in a larger energy user and consequently emitter around their decarbonisation opportunities. And, and so that gave people the insights as to where they could reduce their emissions and um, quite likely increase their energy efficiency as part of that as well, because that's always the first thing anybody should do is, is optimise their use of energy by energy efficiency initiatives. But once you've done that and when you're looking at fuel switching, which is getting off fossil fuels and onto renewables, that's the next step. And, and what we've been able to do um, under, under the government with the funding that we've received is to provide funding support to many organisations to help them on that journey. And, you know, we've made considerable progress in the last few years around that. Um, and that's been assisted by the technologies available. Mm. Um, for example, higher temperature heat pumps have been a critical technology that have allowed people to um, meet their hot water needs by getting off gas or coal and switching to electricity and heat pumps. 
and equally with electrode and, electro and, and electric boilers is another technology that's being widely adopted that's helping that journey as well. So across the primary sector in particular, we work closely with just about every meat processing company, the large cooperatives and, and the, and the um, other ownership structures that exist there, the dairy sector, and of course you'd be familiar with the recent um, large partnership agreement that's been entered into Fonterra with support for them to particularly reduce coal in their South Island coal plants. Um, and, and of course, the largest partnership arrangement that we've entered into most recently is with New Zealand Steel to see them reduce their coal consumption to the extent that they will be re um, reducing their emissions by an estimated 800,000 tonnes per year. So we've made excellent progress with many of the larger coal users. Gas is harder. There's just no question about it. Um, it's a, it's a very convenient form of energy. It's it's instantaneous. It's widely deployed in, in in homes, particularly in the North Island, where you've got reticulated gas, and many businesses in the North Island rely upon it as well. But it has to come into our consideration and is, and we are supporting companies who are looking to get off gas and are getting off gas but it's not occurring at the same rate that we've made progress with coal. Let's talk about the way you partner with organisations like that. There's been an argument that would say, well, rather than partnering uh, and what could pass as corporate welfare, wouldn't the government be better to just have a stick and require New Zealand Steel to be a better performing and a better behaved company, but instead has given them a whole pile of money and you've worked with them to form, you know, quite a comfortable deal for them. When wouldn't it be, and I'm not suggesting this is a legitimate argument, but it's an argument, right? To say, geez, wouldn't it be just so much better to um, set some uh, requirements around their emission standards and let the market solve itself? Look, it's an entirely legitimate question and, and it's one that we are, asked about on a, on a regular and frequent basis and one that we do a lot of um, self-reflection and deliberation about to make sure that we are using what we call the appropriate levers to get the change that we're seeking. And, and by levers, I, I refer, we, we have three levers that we identify here at ECA. They are co-investment, which is support for um, businesses who are on their decarbonisation journey, and that's of all sizes. We also have the ability and do regulate many products in the market, particularly around energy efficiency and um, energy efficiency labelling, as you would have seen in mm. Harvey Norman stores and the like. Yep. Uh, and the third one is is encouraging that behaviour change. And we referenced that earlier around people's choice uh, around transport options that they have. But, but coming back directly to that question that you posed, um, is, is that... We're strongly of the, view, of the view that there does need to be a combination of measures and, and most economies in the developed world are seeing the same need and necessity and you only need to look across the Pacific to the US who have poured billions of dollars into the transformation of their economy with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And, and I mean, it's trillions of dollars, those sums are, which says, look, we need we need to have a stick around regulation, but we also need to have a carrot around incentive. And, and that's what we're adopting. And, and the government, through recent initiatives around the consenting of fossil fuel boiler systems, um, that has got a now a national uh, 
requirement that they will require consents for emissions over 500 tonnes per site, I think it is, is part of the stick. Mm. And of course, there is the carrot that exists around some of the um, support that we've been provided. But look, I just want to specifically make mention of New Zealand Steel. Uh, it's it's a global operating entity. It's owned by Blue Scope out of Australia, who operate in Australia, New Zealand, and North America. And and so there is an, always an option for an entity like that. If it's too difficult around their transition journey and the speed of that journey, to shut and move offshore. And, and so that that was part of the consideration around the support for that entity. Um, and and. You know, we all saw the issues that arose during COVID around supply chain and the security of our supply chains. And it, it was strongly felt within government circles that to lose our large domestic onshore manufacturer of steel would be a negative outcome that mm. could result from that. Uh, but the other thing that is is really important to note as well is that with the Harris commitments around our emission reductions that we signed up to by the end of 2030 and the liability that will occur if we don't achieve those. And, and, and the way that we frequently compare the, the benefit of the investments that we're making is, well, what would happen if we can't achieve those emission reductions by 2030 and we have to seek offshore credits? Nobody knows whether we can yet actually access them, let alone what the cost is actually going to be. And there are some estimates now provided by Treasury around what those costs will be. But the steel deal, as we refer to it, has delivered an abatement cost per tonne of carbon that's abated as part of that agreement at $16.20 per tonne. Um, we think that's exceptional value for, for the New Zealand taxpayer in the context of what our Paris commitment liabilities will be. And it's just a question of how large they will be. So, yes, I understand why people ask the question around corporate welfare, and it's a constant need and necessity for us to make sure that we are, we are only ever supporting to the level we need to, but that we are all about accelerating those emission reductions to get the benefit of that against the commitments that we've signed up to and to help address the climate change challenge we've all got as soon as we can. You mentioned earlier about the need for addressing efficiency first. Why? Why look at efficiency instead of changing fuels? It, it, it's it's always the cheapest option, and and yet surprisingly, it gets left to the side, and <laughs> and it, it's bamboozled us forever. Not as much forever. fun as building a windmill, we, though, we, is it, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. It's it's never as much fun as doing a big project around switching your, your, your fuel type from coal to electricity or biomass or whatever it might be. But if you have to use less energy to begin with, you've got a, an immediate cost benefit from that. Um, it can help make the business case for the fuel switching that much more attractive as well, because if I have to use 20% less of energy because I've increased the efficiency through um, heat capture and reuse or whatever it is, then it just makes the whole economics that much easier. And um, it's, it's known globally that you go to energy efficiency first, and it doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter if it's lighting or space heating or industrial process heat, any form of energy. And, and you know, electric vehicles are a really good example of that. I mean, they are so incredibly efficient, electric motors, is that you just get a phenomenal efficiency gain by using electricity as your energy source and not diesel or petrol. 
So, you know, there there is massive advantage and our encouragement would always be do energy efficiency first. Um, and most organisations do because they know what the benefits are. And that's our encouragement to households as well. Swap out those lights, put LEDs in, buy efficient appliances, look at heat pump technology, which are all incredibly efficient and just getting more efficient. Mm. I interviewed um, Andrew from the um, Green Building Council uh, uh, about a year ago, and he uh, was talking about the really the power of having more efficient buildings. And in his view, investment in more efficient buildings, even retrofitting the existing housing stock, would have a really profound effect on the requirement for more generation to be built. Is that actually an equation that you can trade off you know that an efficient more efficient use of housing more efficient buildings will reduce the requirement for building more um generation capacity look absolutely it will uh because if you improve if you improve the efficiency of buildings or appliances or whatever it just means that you have less demand on electricity as your energy source and so it means that you can defer the build of new generation i mean there's no doubt that we're going to have to have a truckload of new generation as we electrify our transport fleet and as we decarbonize our industrial process heat area as well being the, the major ones that where that will arise but Andrew's quite right. I mean, there's substantial benefits from that. And that's why, of course, you know, the government's funded ECA to continue to deliver the, the warmer Kiwi homes insulation and efficient heating program. Right. Because yep. that provides substantial benefit, not only to the inhabitants around health, but also um, the, the energy efficiency gains and, and the less stress that it creates on the energy or electricity supply side, particularly at peak times. I am going to add a but, though. Because it's like anything, is that when you retrofit something, it's much more costly than adopting those energy efficiency measures when you build something new. And and I always sort of ascribe to the to the um, philosophy of, for goodness sake, do the right thing when you buy something new. Because when you buy something new, it's going to last for a, a, a decent period of time. I, I mean, our vehicles on average in New Zealand last 20 years. For mm. goodness sake, buy the right vehicle because it's still going to be here in 2043. Mm. Or a house is expected to last at least 50 years and many of, you, uh, many of our houses last substantially longer. So that's a critical thing. Around retrofitting, it can be very expensive. And so I think there's always, and, and I'm going to use the term, but it's an important term to use. There is a cost-benefit assessment that needs to be done for that. You know, if it's going to cost you 50000 to retrofit a house and you just don't get the benefit from that that you would by using perhaps a little bit more energy to heat it, that always needs to be consideration. So I think there's a point where there's some really obvious things to do and we should always do those, but... It, it's it's not always a case in a simpler case of saying do everything because I think the cost benefit gets out of whack sometimes. Another area that you have worked on is attitudes. You've been measuring attitudes towards climate change over quite a period of time now. What what are you noticing and and kind of the mood and and attitudes towards climate? I mean, compare it to when you first came in in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, look, there's no question that the awareness is, is right up there now, and, and that's continued to increase, but probably plateaued now at, at that sort of 
low to mid eighties level. Um, and, and and of course, you know the the significant. What do you mean by eighties? But eighty percent, eighty percent of the population that we that we um, survey. Uh, are absolutely on board with with what climate change is about and and the issues that it's creating for us. And you have a portion of the population that, for whatever reason, don't think it's going to be as impactful for them. Um, I suspect a very small number of those would be deniers because I think that they're almost, um, you know, they're very few and far between these days. So, but it's plateaued. But the but the issue that we're trying to overcome is is the correlation between the awareness of the issue but but the action that we need to take as a society as a country and as a globe to arrest the rate of climate change that's occurring and we all know that our current targets are trying to keep global warming below one and a half percent um celsius and i think most people would say that is going to be almost impossible now because we're just not making the rate of progress that's required and so the next issue is well, what are the consequences going to be for us as a society and, and as a species when our temperatures go above that level? And, you know, all of the scientific evidence that's evident in the, the reports that come out on a regular basis it's, is it's going to be increasingly catastrophic. And so that's what we need to do is that we totally get why people will always be concerned by the issues of the moment about providing for their families, about... Um, dealing with cost of living, um, having secure jobs and having a fulfilling life. But, but, you know, there's a responsibility on all of us to think about the future for both ourselves as individuals and, and, our, and our families, particularly our children and grandchildren, as we go forward on this issue. Mm. Um, because, you know, if we don't get our heads around this and do something seriously, it, 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 it is not going to be particularly pretty and, and easy for us going forward. And we're already seeing that all over the world. What are you going to do next? Um, I can answer that in a slightly peculiar way by saying I know what I'm not going to do. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've worked full on, full time for a considerable period now um, and, and have been, you know, had a particularly fulfilling career and particularly this this role at ECA, which has just been fantastic. Um, so I don't want to do that. I want to, don't want to work full time, full on. But I'm I'm going back to live permanently in my home in Hawkes Bay, which is where I do live, and to hopefully continue to contribute in the energy sector, um, which you know I have a strong affiliation with now, where I think I can add value still, and help make a difference in the areas that will be an ongoing challenge as we go on this decarbonisation transition journey. Mm. Do you have grandchildren yourself? I do. I, I had my first grandchild born about um, eight weeks ago now. And, um, you know, I suspect her life expectancy is well above 90 um, as things stand at this point in time, which means that she uh, will live to the next century. And I have an increasing concern about what her future might look like if, if we don't really don't get serious as a global population about confronting the challenge we've got. Mm. How serious are we now in New Zealand? Look, I think there's an enormous amount of progress being made. Um, and, and, you know, oh, and I know the corporates get a lot of accusation levelled against them around greenwashing and, you know, they aren't moving fast enough. But, you know, they all have restrictions of one sort or another. And, you know, I've been massively impressed by what our corporate sector is doing. And, I'm, and that's big 
and right down to many small as well. I think increasingly um, households and individuals and families and communities are making progress. Uh, but but there's one thing, I was, I was in the States a couple of weeks ago with our minister, and one of the books that we got presented to us when we went to Stanford University was written by someone who's um, involved as an investor early on in, in Google and Amazon. And he wrote a book called Speed and Scale around the climate change challenge. And, and I think that's the issue that we really need to get our heads around. We need to go as fast as we can and at the most significant scale that we can as well, because if we don't, we're just not going to do what's required to be done. Mm. And the obvious question then would be, well, are we moving at pace enough? And if not, what has to change to make that happen? And look, I think every commentator would say that, that there's nowhere in the world that's moving at the pace we need to. Um, I, I don't think there is a country that is moving as fast as it needs to. Here in New Zealand, I think our our, our pace is picking up, but that we need to keep our eye on the ball and, and keep building on that base that is being created. Um, and, and, and as Minister Shaw has said, and, and I just totally agree with him on this front, we cannot use the excuse that we are too small to make a difference. Uh, it, it's, it's true that we are too small to make a difference, but if every small country has that as a reason why they don't take the actions that are required, um, you know, that, that is a significant issue because collectively I think their, their emissions are about 35% of global emissions mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that just can't happen. And as a first world country too, we have a responsibility to play our part and do our bit. And, and you know, to me that is fundamentally important. I threatened to ask you the question at the end, uh, out of 10, how do you rate your performance? Oh, boy. I, I, was, <laughs> I, I was hoping you were going to have forgotten that you were going to ask me that one because I'm, <laughs> I'm a relatively humble person about what my, my own achievements are because it, it's never about an I or a me. It's always about the we. Um, but, look, and I'm going to throw it back to that Uh You'd probably expect me to say it, but but I I really do believe it. As I as I finish up in a, in a few hours here at Eco, I do feel feel immensely proud with what we've achieved um, over the last six plus years with the support of the government and the minister during that time, and the momentum that we have created and the results that we are achieving. So, look, um, you know, uh, there's never perfect in my world, so I'd never go near that. But as an organisation. You know, I'd rate us around an eight. We can always do better. We know we can always do better. We're always seeking to do better. Um, but I'm pretty damn proud of what we've done. Well, on that on that note, we shall leave you to go off to your um, leaving do, although I think you've already had that, right? Um, thanks so much for joining us, Andrew, and uh, good luck for the next um, part of your career. Thank you very much, Vincent. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, I, I will follow progress irrespective of me stepping out of the eco role today with uh, keen interest and 100% support. Cheers. Good on you. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō. Thank you.